Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Friday the 17th of August with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The United Kingdom, as you know, will leave the European Union in seven months from now on the 29th of March. How that is done must be agreed by October. Otherwise, European countries, including Ireland, will trade with the UK under World Trade Organization regulations and a hard border would be unavoidable on this island. Negotiations resumed in Brussels yesterday with officials discussing how a border must be avoided at all costs but seemingly nobody had any realistic suggestion for achieving this. EU leaders are due to meet in Austria next month but Brexit is not tabled for discussion. That leaves one chance in October to solve the dilemma. So what will be proposed then? Nobody knows what the British are actually intending but perhaps the British can accurately preempt what European negotiators might have to say. Matt Carthy is a member of the European Parliament for Sinn Féin and on the line. But what do you make of this report that British Secret Service agents have been spying on European leaders? I wasn't one bit surprised, I have to be honest with you, Michael. We know that the British, even in terms of our own negotiations here in Ireland, have a long track record of espionage, of dirty tricks, for want of a better term during negotiations that took place after the Good Friday Agreement. You may may remember that at one point um, in the run-up to, I think it was the St. Andrew's talks, um, a bug was found, and a very (coughs) elaborate bug was Mm. found in Gerry Adams' car. Um, One of my predecessors, Barbara De Bruyne, MEP, um, similarly found that her office had been bugged at one point during very sensitive negotiations. We have always assumed and we have conveyed this in our in our talks with the Irish government. Well, you're making your comments based on a, a report in the Daily Telegraph uh, that they were bugging prime ministers and uh, the Taoiseach and presidents from uh, across Europe. Uh, this is not being confirmed by uh, the European officials. Uh, but do you believe the report in the Telegraph? It's not that I believe what's in the Telegraph. My own suspicion has always been that anybody who's negotiating with the British government should assume 
that they are being listened to covertly um, by British um, security services. Um, and if we were to have been asked by any of the players in the negotiations, and my suspicion is that the European Union negotiators would have also put in place some measures to try and um, minimise the impact that any mm. eavesdropping operation would be in place. And the truth of the matter is that uh, um, the European Union or any government will never acknowledge um, um, specifically that they have been bugged for, for their own operational reasons. We know when, for example, it transpired that um, American forces were listening into um, Angela Merkel's private phone calls and other issues. The German government actually never accepted or never publicly acknowledged mm. that that was the case, even though it became very quickly um, accepted mm. conventional wisdom. So the truth of the matter is that there, that nobody plays dirty tricks um, like the British government. They have a long history, and as I say, in this island um, in particular, they have a track record of engaging in what you could call duplicitous actions, uh, particularly when it comes to negotiations and sensitive negotiations. So regardless of whether the specific report in the Telegraph is true or not, my advice, if anyone were to ask it, uh, for anybody who's involved in negotiations with the British government is assume that that same government is doing whatever it can to um, capitalise in terms of its own information gathering um, um, techniques. The difficulty, mm. I think, politically from all of that is if the British government have been hearing what has been said, they haven't listened and they certainly haven't gathered the message because they're still pursuing um, a customs arrangement proposal, which is quite clearly publicly and privately being dismissed by all the key players in the negotiations. But how could, you, how could you listen to anything they have to say? How could you do business with them if they're going to play so dirty? And according to the Telegraph, the concerns were raised by Michel Barnier, the European chief negotiator, at a meeting of the Council on the 13th of July. And this followed a presentation on the 5th of July, I think it was, to the Council from the European Commission. It was a slideshow setting out the negative economic consequences of the UK plans to remain in a single market. And then that ended up with Theresa May before she met with her cabinet at Chequers. Yeah, and the, the difficulty, and I suppose to use our own experience in terms of our negotiations in relation to the peace process, while Republicans would have always suspected and in some cases have very clear evidence of um, British intelligence operations being car- carried out, it still didn't undermine their need to actually negotiate with them. So while um, we may have had a cause in on the sense of what's right and wrong hmm. to withdraw from negotiation. That simply wasn't an option because we all needed collectively to secure a negotiated settlement in relation to the conflict in the North. The same is true in relation to the Brexit negotiations. We can't either individually or collectively as a European Union say, well, we're not going to um, engage with the British government on until until such stage as they actually um, agreed to negotiate on a fair and an equal basis and um, in, mm. in, in line with the conventional rules of di- diplomacy, because that's simply not going to happen. So what I think will will happen, and I believe probably has happened, is that European negotiators are working on the assumption that British intelligence services are trying to listen and they're trying to minimise 
that through their own um, counter uh, counter surveillance. It's um, mad though, isn't it? In that, it's one of the few times that a discussion on Brexit has become remotely interesting uh, because uh, it's a little bit like something out of a James Bond movie. Otherwise, it's this tedious, nonsensical discussion of trying to achieve the impossible. Well, um, I have to say I might be a bit of a nerd or a geek because I have found the Brexit negotiations incredibly interesting, if not extremely worrying also and infuriating at times. Mm, totally frustrating. I mean, that's the, that's the point that I'm making, that they're, they're nonsensical. Yeah, I think, I think in terms of the bugging story, the bugging story, I think what that will simply serve is a reminder to lots of people across Europe, probably Irish people didn't need as stark a reminder, that the British government um, cannot be trusted in terms of their good faith. And I suppose Mm. the greatest evidence of that is the fact that the only political agreement that we've had in the course of the Brexit negotiations was the December communique. Do you remember the so-called backstop, the commitments in relation to the North, the commitments in relation to um, the customs union and the border and that all was, that. That, that was the solution that Theresa May uh, agreed to and then went on to say that no British Prime Minister would ever agree to such a thing. Absolutely, and that's mm. the difficulty that I was going to um, relay is that Almost immediately after that political agreement, the British government have actually been backtracking and we've had the swings and rounds about in terms of their commitment to to that. So, yes, there is bad faith on the part of the British government and there has been consistently in this process. Part of that has been just their natural way of dealing with these things. The other area has been their own um, th- th- their own confused state of organisation in terms of how they approach this and exactly mm. what it is that the British government want to see at a, in, in a final negotiated agreement because nobody, and not even those I would argue who are a part of the negotiations, are aware of exactly what it is that the British government want and what we know what mm. we want. Um, we want to have um, a situation where there is no hardening of the border in Ireland and where we have a situation where we have continued access insofar as is possible, as close to what we have now yeah. in terms of trade between Ireland and Britain. Particularly. But go, go, going back to this James Bond theory uh, that the British Secret Service is spying, uh, it's quite possible that the British know what we want before we've even thought of it. Uh, and like the whole thing here is a question of trust uh, i mean many of us grew up thinking that the british always looked on the irish as stupid are they trying to make fools out of the europeans well certainly there is a um a sense of a sense of entitlement within the british political um, establishment that they believe that they can play by different rules than anybody that they're engaged on negotiations and yes you're right in terms of their approach to ireland has always been um, has always been one in which they felt an entitlement to be able to um, send in their um, um, send in their spies say, and to use covert operations to um, to elicit information from not only Republicans but also in many instances from the Irish government, where at the same time um, would be up in arms if a similar um, reciprocal arrangement had been put in place by any Irish institution or body in Britain. So there is a level of hypocrisy within the um, within the British government. And as you say, this is a very interesting story. 
But to me, what we all need to do is just work on the, assemb- on the assumption that the British government are going to engage in dirty tricks, that they're going to engage in spying and covert operations and illegal operations in terms of international law, um, and that we put in place measures to counteract that by minimising the potential impact. But at the same time, the funny thing, and I've met Michel Barnier and I've met most of the negotiators, the truth of the matter is that the position that has been articulated by people on the European side privately is very similar to what they have been saying publicly. And the problem throughout has been that the British government simply haven't got the message that there is Mm. no way that they can expect 27 other countries to put in place what the British are arguing for, which is an additional layer of very complicated bureaucracy in order to accommodate Britain, the British government being able to cover itself politically at home, which is essentially what the most recent British proposals for a customs arrangement have been. So if they haven't got that message publicly, perhaps listening privately will actually send the message home. Who knows? Do you remember Sinn Féin used to be in government in the British province of Northern Ireland? I remember we were part of a devolved administration in Stormont, and I know that we're working very hard to try and restore that. How long long ago was that? That was about 20 months ago when the institutions collapsed. So we're coming close on two years. Yes, um, and previous to that, we had been part of that administration for up on 10 years where we worked in good faith to deliver not only on the letter but the spirit of the Good Friday Agreement and put in place the mechanisms by which we could deliver for all the people of the north of Ireland. Unfortunately, the actions of the DUP and the failure of the British government in particular, but also the Irish government, to hold the DUP to account and to stand up for the Good Friday Agreement left us in no choice but to withdraw our support for those institutions, which subsequently led to its collapse. And unfortunately, in the period since, we have had no indication from either the DUP or the British and Irish government that the necessary mechanisms in order to ensure that the institutions can be restored in a fit-for-purpose way um, um, are are, are in place. And Mm. we've seen time and time again that the DUP simply aren't up for accepting the types of rights-based um, mechanisms that are required to re-establish the institutions. But I'll say this to you, um, mm. we want the institutions to be back up and running. We want the institutions to be able to deliver for all the people of the North, but we're not going to go in um, and return to a set of institutions that aren't fit for purpose but, and fit to deliver but, for all the people of the North. But given the urgency of uh, the situation and uh, the seriousness of uh, the consequences of a hard Brexit, it's little wonder then that uh, I'm reading uh, a quote from uh, Lisa Chambers, who's uh, Fianna Fáil's uh, spokesperson on Brexit. She was speaking to the Parnell Summer School and she said that the DUP and Sinn Féin's conduct in relation to Brexit is a disgrace and is accusing both yourselves in Sinn Féin and the DUP of an abdication of responsibility in collapsing the Stormont institutions over the past 20 months. Yeah, unfortunately, Fianna Fáil are playing political games in what I would consider to be a desperate bid to try and make themselves relevant on Brexit or on anything. The truth of the matter is that, well, I don't know actually whether Fianna Fáil um, fully understand the nuances of the political situation in the North. But if they did, then they should be honest enough to reflect that even if the institutions in the North were mm. up and running, as we would like them to be, the issues pertaining to Brexit would still be as stark and would still be as profound because you would be dealing with a situation that you would have an administration, a government in effect, 
that is made up largely of two parties that have the exact opposite position in relation to Brexit. Sinn Féin, in line with the majority view yes. of the people of the North... But the, the, but the, major- the, the majority view of Stormont uh, would uh, support uh, remaining within the European Union uh, and would act in a, a way which would... Uh, object to a hard Brexit and to a British withdrawal without an agreement at the very least. And that would count for absolutely nothing in the larger scheme of things. We have, for example, a Scottish government with devolved powers that has a very clear position in relation to where Scotland... So Stormont is an irrelevance, is it? In relation to the Brexit negotiations, unfortunately it would be because the British government have actually withdrawn any of the mechanisms by which the devolved institutions can actually um, can actually contribute to the discussions. And, you know, as I say, I'm using the example of Scotland because it's a very good one where you almost have a united position within the Scottish Assembly, where you certainly have a united position within the Scottish Government mm. and where that position has simply been ignored. The truth of the matter is, in relation to the position of the North um, vis-à-vis the European Union in a post-exit scenario, the crucial areas of negotiation and of uh, of interaction are in Dublin and in Brussels and that is where Sinn Féin have been very focused and very um, very active in relation to delivering and putting in place a position where Ireland is a central team of the Brexit negotiation. That's in large part due to our efforts and all the while we've been engaged in a very constructive way, in a way in which we have supported the Irish government when they've been doing what we believe has been the right things, and um, criticising the Irish government when we believe that they haven't been strong enough, and all the while Fianna Fáil are in the background, waving their arms um, and jumping up and down in the air, trying to say, here, see us, see us, and they're saying whatever they believe they need to say in order to be seen, as opposed to constructively engaging with the rest of us to try and ensure that we actually have a Brexit outcome that actually um, protects the island of Ireland, north and south, and that ensures that all of Ireland, all 32 counties, remain part of the European Union in the post-Brexit situation. Okay, well, the clock continues uh, to tick down on October's deadline. We leave it there for the moment, though, and thank you indeed for joining us here this morning. Matt Carthy, Sinn Féin MEP. It's more expensive uh, to rent somewhere to live now than it's ever been before. When did you last hear that? Well, three months ago and three months before that and three months before that. Uh, This is uh, the latest report uh, from uh, daft.ie. It says uh, the average cost of uh, renting a home in Louth is €1,161. That's up 13.4% in the last year. The cost in Mead is €1,253. That's up 13% in the last year. Jerry O'Connor is a Fine Gael councillor in Mead. Will it be more expensive to rent than it's ever been before in three months from now, do you think? Uh, Michael, good morning. Uh, I think it will. Uh, I think we're in, we're in, in, in an emergency situation. Uh, I, I've seen firsthand uh, at the coal face the lack of availability of rental uh, supply. And in that situation, rents are going up. And drafts, and, and they'll, they'll tell you this themselves, they're, they're only basing their, their, their figures on rents that are advertised. They don't really bear a relation to what rents are actually being achieved. Uh, so it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a very difficult situation, Michael. What do you mean? It's more expensive? <clears throat> in some cases, yes. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at 
I'm looking at some properties just in, in my own local area, Kilmess and Dunboyne and Ashbourne, and looking at what 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 they're what the rents that they're, they're, they're asking for, and I know it's not bearing any relation to what they're actually achieving. You could add maybe 10% onto it. Well, that's it, because, uh, I mean, when you talk about the average in Meath, uh, you're talking about Ashburn, Dunshockland, uh, but you're also talking about Kells and Oldcastle. Uh, so, realistically speaking, you're probably looking at the costs that people are having to find uh, and fork up in Dublin. Uh, probably not as high as Dublin yet. I mean, if you look, if you go down further southeast in the county, down to the Dunboyne, you're looking at 2,200 uh, for, for for a three or four bedroom house, uh, which is, you know, it's it, it just gone. It's I, I don't know what the answer is, but I know I'm looking at a house that was rented seven years ago in Kilmessen for 750 uh, euro. It's now on the market at 1,400. Uh, you know, that's not sustainable. Uh, and I think the problem is, uh, if we keep on doing things the way we, we normally do them and we've always done them uh, we get the same results uh, I think we're in an emergency and I think we need to have to think outside the box and do something different I think we have to start looking back at, at how we, we, we sort out uh, this problem once and for all this is an emergency if there's an earthquake in these tomorrow mm. a national emergency will be, will be uh, proclaimed and no amount of money will be put in will, will, will be held back to, to get it sorted out and that's where we are now at the moment both nationally and mm. locally I mean, to put it into context if you think about it there's a, a lot of people who are working full time for €20,000 a year uh, before deductions and there's a lot of people in this country who are paying that much in rent Well, the reality is that we've, we now have a situation where there's a generation of people who are nearly they will never be able to go on the property ladder and that is something that is something that we really have to tackle. We have to look back and see how we did it in the past. We have to look at I mean, it. It is ludicrous, mm. for example, you can buy a two-bedroom apartment in Ashbourne for 185000 uh, And the mortgage on that would be substantially cheaper than what you could rent a two-bedroom mm. apartment in, in, in Ashbourne. It is just doesn't make sense. Mm. And we have to throw out the, the old rules. And we have to do, deal with this as, in whatever way we can. And if whatever we're doing at the moment, it's not working. Uh, and that has to be tackled. Would, would you vote for a, a government uh, that presides over a situation uh, where people work full-time, earning as much as it costs some people to rent in this country? Uh, yes, I'm a member of Fianna Gael, as, as, you, as you know, and they happen to be in government. This is not something that started three years ago or four years ago or ten years ago. This is something that, through policy decisions, bad policy decisions over a good number of years, including during this government. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I'm not, I'm not running away from that. Uh, decisions mm. have been made which, which, which haven't. They're like Band-Aids. Mm. They're, not, they're not tackling the problem that needs to be tackled. I mean, if you look back in the 80s, we had things called starter homes which allowed people to get into the market and at least get a roof over their head at an affordable price. Mm. We don't have those anymore. We're not building enough apartments. We're not allowing people to get in, even into an apartment. We have a problem with, uh, with people with the rents at that high. There's no way that people can save uh, deposits. Or, or pay for their bus or buy a ticket to the cinema or get their dinner. I I I I I agree with you. Uh, I would agree with you. Uh, it is now it is now. This is the biggest biggest mess 
face in this country, and unless we get on top of it, and very very quickly, uh, and and the, the answer to it in the in the long, the medium to long term mm. is the supply of houses. There's no doubt. No Finnegan has been in government for eight years. We have, Michael. We have, but we have short memories. We all have short memories as a nation, and we tend to look at things in the last year or two years or three years. No, I'm talking about the last eight years. No, but, well, no, fine. Well, we're not. We're there since 2011, so this is 2018. So it's seven years, right? Okay. okay. Uh, now I'm not going to be. I'm not. I, yeah, no, I'm fair enough. No, no, you're, but, you're, you're right. I'm sorry. But the, <laughs> the troika mm. were still here up to 2013. Mm. Okay, and the, the economy has only started to recover. We've only started being able to build houses in the last two years. That is the reality of the national financial situation we were in, uh, and that and that's 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 the reality of it. So, in the last two to three years, I mean, we've seen housing prices even that after part, or if you look at my home, mm. they're seeing that we're bringing a bit of normality back to the housing market. Right, we've a target of 40,000 houses, we built 25,000. Mm. But you look at the Simon report this week, nobody can afford to rent. No, I, I agree, and that's what's compounding the, the like it wasn't that, it, was, it wasn't that bad mm. seven and a half years ago. Uh, you know, it may have been an inherited situation, but you've made it worse. No, it was that bad seven and a half years ago, because if you remember seven and a half years ago, the other crisis which was facing us was negative equity. The other crisis we're facing is where two people were working, those who were lucky enough to work, were working for the same reason, just to pay the mortgage to keep the roof over the head because there was negative equity. They couldn't afford to sell their houses. Mm, but it wasn't this equity, bad. I mean, uh, as we said at the outset, it's never been more expensive to rent in this country. And you said uh, you believe it'll be uh, more expensive again in three months. Well, I'm just looking at the trends. I'm looking at the trends. Yes. Uh, and, that's, and that's the reality. And it is the plight. I mean, there's, there's, there's six rental properties in South East Mead today, this morning, on draft.ie. Six. One of them is a house for 3000 a month. Mm. Whose fault the is that? It's, are, not daft, it's not draft.ie's fault. No, no, it's not. I'm just telling they you. They just advertised the, no, the properties, no, the yeah. yeah. There's, there's a, couple yeah. Of, there's a mm. lot of things. It's a multifaceted thing, Mike. There's a lot of things happening, first of all. There were what I would call accidental landlords who during the time when the, the, the banks were giving out money to beat the band, took out these uh, buy-to-rent uh, mortgages, 100% mortgages, and they might have speculated about two or three properties. Mm. And for the, last, for the last number of years, up to, up to the last two to three years, they weren't getting a return. And, and a lot of them are choosing to walk with their feet now. Now that the pro- negative equity has gone over, they're selling their properties, getting out of the rental market. Mm. And that is making a, diff- a difference to the availability of rental space. The way we treat, uh, even those accidental landlords, the way we treat them in relation from a tax point of view is totally wrong. Mm. I mean, the rent they're getting is being taxed as income, as a, but it's not being offset against the cost of the room. There are little things that could, could be done. We should be looking at the old situation where, I mean, look at student accommodation. Mm. It's another crisis. Who, who, who should be looking at it? Well, the government should be looking at it, and the department should be looking at it. But I find, but they the are looking is, at it, aren't they? I mean, you, 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 well, we have got we have got a plan. It's a long term plan. Yeah. Uh, you know, just, and, like in the next, and dis- despite the dism- dismal failure, uh, you uh, continue uh, to stand beside them. I haven't seen an alternative coming from anyone else, uh, Michael. To be quite honest, I I have loads of people. I'm at the cold face, so I'm dealing with this on a day to day basis. Mm. I don't see any new ideas coming from anyone else. I hear everyone bickering about it that it's not working. The reality is somebody has to make it work, whether it's this government, the next government, or the previous government. All I know is I know from the capital expenditure that we're going to be putting into housing, 
We've put 4.6 billion in 2017. That's going to increase to 8.6 billion by 2021. Money's been thrown at this, but money isn't solutions. There's a number of things that have to happen, first of all. There's a migration from people out of Dublin because they can't afford the rents in Dublin coming out to need, which is causing the problem as well. Unless Dublin I thought the government was going to solve that by introducing rent caps. Well, the rent caps were, were, were put in at 4%. And now we're looking at the rent increasing by 13%. And you're looking at nationally 13%. But if you look down through, through the figures, you'll see that Mead is not at 13%. Mead was at 13%. In the last year, it's, uh, in the, last year the increase is 13%. In Mead? Yeah. I'm just looking at the DAF report here saying about 6.7%, uh, Michael. OK, well, I'm looking at the DAF report and it says 13% in the last year. Okay, well, then maybe I'm reading it wrong here, Michael. There's so many, so many figures coming out, and we can analyse the figures all we like. Well, at the end of the day, I'd like to see some bloody movement on it. Uh, to be quite honest, because it's 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 having a huge impact, and we're now seeing we're, what we're now seeing mm. now manifesting itself. It's a societal damage that was done by the crash. The crash has had a huge effect on people. And now people are, and it's going to have a long-term effect on people unless we get on top of this now as soon as possible. I don't know how we do it. Okay. But we did it in Dublin. We did it in Dublin when we had a tenement crisis in the 40s and 50s. So there, is a, there, is, there was a way of doing it then. So we have mm. to look at doing it again. All right. But we do, we uh, do uh, have just, to start just, building apartments. We do have to start looking at other ways of alleviating the situation. And I personally think, and I've said this for a number of years, and I put a motion down for it and all, and it's never got any traction. We need to analyse further the housing list and break out of it. Make the split between those who need support for rent for renting accommodation and those who need social housing. Because only we can tackle that and we crack that nut, we're looking at figures and they're just getting bigger and bigger. And so we're there, not aren't, there, there aren't any social housing uh, uh, units available. The government's policy is to rent from private landlords. Uh, and just to quote directly from the report, in Meath, rents were on average 13% higher in the second quarter of 2018 than a year previously. Okay. The, the average advertised rent is now €1,253, Euro, up 94% from its lowest point. Oh, I've seen that. I've seen that. Yes. No. I, I've seen that. I've seen that. Like no, um, Michael. I can't. I can't justify that or or, 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 mm. or stand over that. It's an absolute natural disgrace, uh, and we we have to tackle it. And and whatever government's in power has to tackle this. How we tackle it is multifaceted. It's not as simple as uh, it, supply and demand is a huge thing. We've seen on the housing situation where there is a calming of the house price increases. That's because there's an increase in supply. When there's more supply of housing, people maybe, if, if, if we look at the central bank and we look at the deposits, it's going to take a number of years. It's certainly going to take a number of years to go this. And anyone that thinks that this is going to be solved in 12 months or 14 months or 18 months, are, are, they're not living in reality. Uh, this is the biggest test for our nation uh, as to how we tackle this problem. Okay. We'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Jerry O'Connor, Finnegale, Councillor in Meath. We'll stay with housing. Sinn Féin Councillor Anne Campbell, you're saying that if people get a council house, the council isn't maintaining the house for them. Yes, Michael. Good morning um, and thank you for having me on. I um, have found in the last couple of months, at least since June, that um, whenever I was putting in maintenance requests for constituents, um, there, there was 
there were council officials were coming back to me and saying that they weren't able to carry out the work straight away or in a timely fashion because of budgetary pressures is the words that they use, which is another word for a lack of money. Hmm. Uh, And what type of repairs are people waiting on to have done? Well, I have a couple of examples from my own work and um, one of them is a house in Dundalk where the council did carry out a damp proofing job, uh, quite a major damp proofing job on the walls of the house. But plaster is needed on, on the walls so that they can be the, the tenant can decorate or put up wallpaper. There's no indication of when this plastering is going to be done. Um, and he, he's been waiting for about three months even to get word about when it might be done. Um, another example is that um, there's a felt off a roof in in a house uh, owned by the council in Dundalk and it's, it leaks during the rain and the lady who is in the house can't light a fire either so part of the, the roof is missing essentially and the council have given her no indication of when this is going to be done although she did report it first in January 2017 and one of the other January cases... January 17? Yes, 2017, yeah. Okay, right. Um, well, and there's a, year, no, a, year, a year and eight months ago or thereabouts. Yes, right. and, and absolutely no indication um, from the council as to w- whether it be done by the yeah. end of this year or whether uh, and, it be... And, and the roof hasn't fallen in yet? No, not yet. All right, well, that might be the dry the, summer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, possibly that yeah. might well be what they're waiting on, but the problem is, Michael, that as these um, repairs and, and maintenance stack up, the problems get worse. So obviously when, when you have uh, water coming in, in a roof, it's not getting any better if it's not fixed. Um, there's another issue as well with roof-related where there's a skylight at a house in Dundalk that needs replaced. And the council have come out and, and looked at it. And they have said that because the, an electric one is needed because of the you know the danger with ropes and, and things like that in, in a skylight and a roof. The cost is estimated at around €600. Euro, um, but there's absolutely no indication of when this is going to be done. And I suspect it could be well uh, next year. This is leaking during rain as well. Mm. And... The requests are are mounting up. There's more requests uh, apart from anything else than was previously the case. Is that right? Yes, and I had noticed um, we we get monthly figures for um, maintenance requests and and they compare them with figures from a year ago or two years ago. And um, at the recent council meeting, um, I noticed that the maintenance requests are up 20% in in two years. Uh, And what do you mean by that? Is it that there's more people waiting on repairs or some sort of maintenance to the house uh, than would have been the case previously or are they new requests that are up 20%? These are the, the, the amount of requests that the council have on their books at the moment so there's a fifth more than there was compared to um, July 20. 20- uh, 2016. Okay, well, uh, I think that probably uh, it, it, or, or could be put down to the fact that uh, they're slower about making the repairs because then yes, they start I, to mount up. Uh, yes, and, and and that's what I would be that's what I would be concerned about because you know the the works. If you take the the lady who has the the hole in in in, in the roof essentially where mm. the felt has come off, um, she reported that in January 17. The whole of of 2017 that that request was sitting on the books it hasn't still been dealt with it remains on the books until it's fixed mm. and um, obviously all these other requests are coming in as well so that has um, accounted for the 20% increase over two years and I suppose you could uh, assume uh, if it's because the work is being done slower that it's uh, taking 20% longer to do the work at least 20% longer to do the work but you know I, I think the the fact that it's it, that it, it's 
it's budgetary pressures and in fairness to the council workers they, they are carrying out the work that they're authorised to do mm. but it's the lack of money that is, is the issue and um, the council officials have said that to me that it's not a question of um, um, workers are not having the, the time it's not a time problem um, it's, it's a money problem uh, well, that would make you think then that the workers don't have a, enough work because they're not spending the money. Well, in fairness, I think as well, you know, I, I, and I think listeners are aware that the council, Life County Council are leading the way when it comes to compulsory purchase orders, you know, where they where they buy um, properties that are, are derelict or that are um, mm. um, repossessed or that are, you know, that are um, boarded up. Uh, so... That, that work is 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 being done uh, a lot by uh, council workers as is well. That gob- is that gobbling up the budget? Uh, is this? No, it isn't. No, no, no. Just to be clear, no, no, right. Michael. That that money is is coming directly from the Department of the Environment and Local Government and Housing. Uh, so the um, that that money is is coming directly from central government. But is the work um, being carried out by the maintenance staff instead of the maintenance it, staff working on uh, it, the existing stock? In some incidents, yeah. Okay, well then perhaps there is a little Peter and Paul uh, involved in all of that. Maybe it's as a result of the pressure coming on the the council from central government because of the housing crisis. Yeah, absolutely. But in in fairness, you know, Life County Council at at the the budget um, that was um, agreed um, in November last year um, has estimated the um, cost of the maintenance of local authority housing units at around 5.9 million euro. Um, the estimated outturn, j- just to be clear, the, mm. or the estimated cost for 2017 was 7.5. So that's a drop um, in the estimates from 7.5 in 2017 mm. to 5.9 in 2018. So um, I'm, I really feel, Michael, that it is, it is money. Mm. And if uh, you long finger some of uh, these jobs, uh, they become more expensive. I mean, you spoke uh, about a €600 Euro job on a, a roof. If you neglect that and the roof falls in, uh, you're going into thousands instead of the uh, 600 uh, Absolutely. But in fairness to, to the, the council workers, their, their, their hands are tied. If, if the money's not been authorised and if the work isn't um, been, been deemed um, that they can afford to do it, um, then you know, there's there's very little that, that they can do without the cash there. Mm. So people have to live uh, in these conditions then? Yes, well, unfortunately, that that, that, that is the, the situation that um, the, the, the budgetary constraints or the lack of money is what it is, 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 is forcing people to do that. And in fairness, the local authority is a landlord. Um, and landlords do have a responsibility to tenants, uh, in, whether that be in, in private rented accommodation with private landlords mm. or in um, council houses where the council, um, Louth County Council is the landlord to mm. maintain and repair properties. Uh, and they set standard. very high standards. Uh, uh, I mean, they wouldn't be renting houses off uh, people if the houses were in the conditions that you're describing to us. Yes, and, 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 and that's the irony of the situation. OK, we leave there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Sinn Féin Councillor Anne Campbell. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and good morning to all our listeners tuning in this morning. Mary from Navin is one of those. And she says, am I missing something? And this is in in relation to the housing situation. She says, how can landlords charge this amount of money for rent? Can the government not control these prices, Michael? Mary wants to know. 
Another listener, Declan from Duluth, says, Michael, instead of having politicians come on your show and talking nonsense and making excuses, why not let them just go out there to do the job they are paid to do? And that's to get home built homes built for the homeless. Okay, because it's the job I'm paid to do, I suppose, <laughs> is the most honest answer I can give you there in terms of uh, the government doing something about uh, the increase in rents. Well, the government has put a system in place where rents, in a lot of areas at least, can't be increased by more than 4%, uh, which is why they've increased by 13% in the last year. Uh, don't forget Fine Gael wanted to lower stamp duty during the boom, mm. says a texter. Yeah, was it lower it or abolish it? I can't remember. Yeah. Mm. Things change so frequently, Michael. It's hard to remember everything, isn't it? Mm. Uh, another listener says, Michael, something's not working when you have a housing assistance payment and it's not enough to cover the cost of rent. Yeah. Mm. That clearly this has to be looked at. Mm. Uh, we also had a phone call from Grania who says that in relation to the HAP, and that's the housing assistance payment, she says that she feels that a lot of the homeless problem is because of the gap between how much rent is costing and what people are actually able to afford. And she fears that unless something is addressed, that more people will end up, sadly, without a home. And she says that she feels that can more be done to maybe increase this payment for those who really need it? Okay, well, I think one thing all the experts agree on is that the root of the problem is supply and demand. So there's far more demand than there is houses available to supply people with. And of course, then that leads to the ability to charge more to those who can afford it. Tying in with housing, Michael, another listener phoned and I suppose the leaving results and all that as well to say that have a son, Michael, is hoping to start college, but where the course he wants to do is in Cork. I'm dreading this whole uh, thing to look for accommodation and the cost involved. But what can Mm. you do? Yeah, it's a a lot of money and it's an expensive thing, especially if you're going to live away from home, going to college and uh, God forbid to think of some of the places that young people have to live in uh, and the conditions that they have to live in because they can't afford anything better. Another caller. So all the politicians are on holidays again, drinking the best of wine, etc. Eating the very... Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Best of food, steaks and so on. Sleeping in nice, big, warm, fancy beds while our homeless sleep on the streets 
begging for food, sleeping in Garda stations and the Garda have to buy them breakfast. Oh, what a beautiful country we live in, Michael, okay. says Declan. Uh, we have, you ruffled a few feathers yesterday, Michael. It's not oh. like you, oh. but you did. Mm. Uh, uh, with that interview with the Labour councillors. Oh, right, OK. Uh, yeah. Paul Bell yeah. and um, P.O. Smith, mm. uh, just in relation to Brendan Helen's leadership. Um, we had a text in from Pat McDade, who, of course, is involved with the Labour Party. And he says, I'm greatly amused by the fawning, backslapping interview treatment given on the Michael Reid show to deputies O'Dowd and Fitzpatrick, when compared to the contempt that Michael Reid heaps on Gerald Nash, Paul Bell and P.O. Smith at every opportunity, maybe the Labour Party was wrong when it pioneered opening the airways to the local regulated independent radio sector after all. No, don't talk to me about that, for God's sake, Pat. Uh, I, I think that, was that not uh, Michael Larry as uh, Minister, as a Finnegan Minister at the time? Uh, can't remember, but uh, there was a lot of questions, uh, I think, about how the licences were awarded and how suddenly an awful lot of uh, big uh, business and a lot of big money got uh, involved in an industry that they had previously no interest in at all. Deirdre from Navin says it's an awful pity, Michael, that you're not as aggressive with Sinn Féin as you are with other political parties. OK. Um, but anyway, one one listener didn't give a name, but who did enjoy that interview yesterday mm. says, great interview, Michael. I'm here cleaning the kitchen laughing because you, you, to- you told them that they were talking nonsense, like a lot of them. And this is from an RD listener. So mm. you made someone happy while they were cleaning their house, Michael. OK, all right, OK. <laughs> we also, mm-hmm. Eamon in Dunlear says, Michael, I've never heard such bull coming out of mouths. Apparently, you're not allowed to talk. And he says, all they do is make promises, promises, promises. And well done for talking over them because they didn't know what they were talking about. <laughs> well... <laughs> I'm sure there are some, as we've heard already, who would think otherwise. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We always get a good, um, uh, what would you say, a selection of views mm-hmm. to this programme. Uh, moving then, you, you also annoyed some cyclists, Michael, yesterday. Oh, no. Yes. Mm. Uh, we had John and Denor in touch who says, Michael Reed's anti-cycling bull is unbelievable. Do you want cyclists to cycle in the ditch, Michael? Drivers are a bigger problem than cyclists. And Michael, your attitude is an even bigger problem. It stinks. Mm. You're not very objective on this matter. OK, well, I certainly wouldn't consider myself to be anti-cycling. Uh, I think cycling is fantastic. Well, a Dundalk listener says, I'm a cyclist, walker and car driver. Mm. I'm fed up with people cycling on footpaths on the wrong side Mm. and expecting the walker to get out of their way when there are bicycle lanes. It seems that nobody is policing this and nobody either, he's getting it all in his mind, is picking up after their dogs and nobody's policing that either. Right, Okay. yeah, yeah. Well, that's uh, never going to change. So there you go. Another listener, John. Uh, Cyclists must be immune to stopping at stop signs. I had a group come out in front of me a short while ago. They came off the Sheetland Road onto the Sandpit Road. And for anyone that doesn't know, that's around Mm. the Termin Beck in kind of County Loud area. Luckily, there was nothing coming the other way and I was able to swerve around them, says John. My God. Hmm. 
So there you okay, go. Yeah. Uh, another responding to, we always get a lot of response when we discuss the whole cycling, motor, mm. safety thing, don't yeah. we? Mm. Um, another listener says that she feels that on both sides there's problems, mm. that there are motorists who are very, very inconsiderate. This comes in from Sheila. Uh, who are very inconsiderate on the roads to everybody, not just cyclists, yeah. to other motorists yes. as well. Mm. And then she feels that there are cyclists who think that they do own the road when they're on the road, particularly those who travel in groups. Mm. That everybody has to take a certain amount of responsibility for their own behaviour, mm. says Sheila. Yeah, well, I, I think Sheila probably talks a lot of sense. Uh, there's always wrong on both sides. Uh, and indeed, no doubt about it, there are motorists who show no consideration for cyclists. And I think any time that we do talk about it, we ask people to show consideration for everybody on the road and to make sure that everybody is safe and alive and not to be doing anything dangerous despite the behaviour of others. But there is the behaviour of others that has to be called yes. into question, as some of our listeners has have pointed out. Uh, but then also... Uh, the reality of having to give one and a half metres uh, if you're going to overtake a, a bicycle, it's a ridiculous idea uh, in this country. And the solution is what they do elsewhere. Uh, I mean, it's not rocket science. You build cycling lanes. Mm. Of course, you need the money to do it, but that's how you make space for cyclists yes. and it's safe for the cyclists and they don't interfere with the flow of traffic. Well, Michael, that's the exact point mm. to be made by Peter, who phoned in. And interestingly, Peter was saying that he was a regular cyclist and loved the bike Mm. but in recent years has been less enthusiastic and that's because of the behaviour of motorists on the road. Uh, Peter says that he was using the Dublin road route in the Drogheda area and came very close on two occasions to being hit by a vehicle Mm. and it really made him nervous and he again is is touching on what you said in relation to cycling lanes that really as a country we Mm. need to be looking at this. Yeah well I I know I was hit by a car uh, and and uh, the car was completely in the wrong when I was on a, a bicycle right. in this country. And okay. I, I know that I, I cycled a bicycle for, bicycle for years right. uh, in a, another country where there was cycling lanes and it was fantastic. Yes. Moving from that, and we, we covered yesterday the story regarding the Enterprise train from Dundalk mm. to Dublin and the problems with overcrowding. Well, we had a text in from a listener who says, Hi, Marie, I travel on the train to Belfast regular with free travel. If there are no regular seats available, I just sit in first class, says this listener. It seems you're allowed to do this. We have never been asked to leave yet. I think it's a great service. <laughs> That's fantastic. OK, I didn't know that. Mm. Well, so far, so good. Let's hope yeah. uh, it keeps going that way. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we'll finish on that one, Michael. Thank you, Marie. Now, confidence amongst uh, small business holders uh, dropped by some 5% in uh, the last uh, quarter with Brexit and economic uncertainty. Big issues for small and medium enterprises. Neil Macdonald, Chief Executive of ISME on the line. Neil, last time we spoke to you, we were talking about the prospect of a hard border. Uh, It seems as though little has changed in the interim. Yeah, unfortunately not, Michael. Uh, And good morning. Um, The confidence, if I try and pluck some good uh, news out of that and this, our survey is a sentiment survey. It is up on the same quarter uh, last year. It is down on on the quarter just gone by and I think a large driver for that is the fact that the negotiations on Brexit seem to have gone nowhere uh, uh, over the summer. We thought there would be a big announcement in June and now we're hoping on some sort of an announcement in October. 
Um, but but in the meantime, then lots of other things are are happening globally. So I I think those are the main factors uh, um, contributing to a, a lowering of confidence among small business owners. And despite that drop in confidence recently, small business holders are hoping to be able to increase wages. Yes, uh, almost two-thirds will be increasing wages this year. Uh, We're in a very competitive wage market, um, most especially in the cities. Uh, So most people seem to be in the 2 to 2.5% uh, wage increase uh, bracket. Um, And those that aren't, most particularly in areas of, of professional services, uh, you know, it's it's a seller's market. So those employees that aren't enjoying wage increases are showing an, an increased uh, uh, tendency to move. And these are, are companies generally employing less than 50 people? Yes, uh, the, the the majority certainly of our members uh, would would be companies with less than 50. And, and within Ireland, there's also a preponderance to, towards the micro end uh, and uh, micro being less than 10 employees. So there, there are a very great many uh, very small businesses in the country. Uh, and, you know, we feel that there has been a lack of focus on those over the last number of years. Uh, but now... You know, the, 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 the people we pay to think about these sort of things, the National Competitiveness Council, the National Treasury Management Agency, the Central Bank, uh, the ESRI, all of these people are saying, you know, we, we need to watch what we're doing with our policy. We're focusing too much on these big American multinationals and not enough on the small native companies. Okay, the cost of insurance and broadband or the lack of broadband are two issues that we talk a lot about in this country and the complaints that people have and small business is not exempt. No, uh, and there has been, unfortunately, uh, there have been some reports, you know, that motor insurance has come down lately, but it's, it's come down from an extremely high base. Um, we reckon in, in, in the long run or over the last five or six years, it's, it's still up more than 50 or 60 percent. The fact that it's come down 14 percent in the last year or two is just off an exceptionally high base. The, the other thing that's happening is the media, as you would expect, is reporting on private motor insurance, but at the same time, uh, employers' liability and public liability insurances are going up. So, the, the types of insurance that small businesses are involved in are actually going the wrong way. Right, and is that feeding into prices then? I, absolutely. Now, it is, Michael, entirely dependent on what sector of business you're in. But uh, So a lot of businesses like um, professional services, manufacturing aren't impacted as much but if you're involved in any anything that involves footfall members of the public or large numbers of employees so if you're involved in retail hospitality uh, distribution construction all of those businesses are are suffering very significant increases um and it, it's not just the cost. I mean, what's happening now is insurers are telling people like creche owners, you know, you may not have any children outdoors. We're insuring you for indoor play only. Right. So it's not just purely a financial cost to insure. Mm, but it, it's uh, to a large degree public liability insurance. 
Yes, uh, public liability and employer's liability. Yeah. Okay, but uh, in terms of public liability insurance uh, and to some degree the employer's uh, liability insurance, uh, we're talking about the public paying for it, uh, the consumer paying for it uh, quite often. Uh, yes, I mean, ultimately, if a business is unable to pass it in on to a consumer, it goes out of business. So by definition, even if you're not an employer or a small business, you are paying for the insurance cost of that business you're buying your goods or services from, yes. Okay, and what about broadband? Uh, I mean, uh, this has uh, been a, a debacle, hasn't it? Uh, have you any confidence uh, that the government will be able to deliver? It seems to be suggesting that despite uh, it, it being left with two-thirds of a bidder that it can achieve its targets. Well, look, Michael, we do not want to put a hex on what's left of the National Broadband Plan. Uh, We are deeply sceptical about it. We suggested in our pre-budget submission uh, to the Minister that the simplest thing at this stage to do, it it would be complex, but if anything goes wrong with ENET, we have no plan B. We are are at a last-man standing stage. Um, 28% of our businesses, almost a third, say that their broadband is insufficient. We have suggested to the minister that the intelligent thing to do at this stage and it's it's being done in Italy for instance in order to give next generation broadband particularly to the poorer areas like the the south of Italy which would very much uh, mimic what rural Ireland looks like here in terms of population density Mm. Um, they're buying their they're keeping their distribution network in public ownership and they're renting the network to commercial suppliers and if you think about it that's exactly what we have done when we've privatized electricity and gas we have not sold the wires we have not sold the gas pipes we've kept those and we've let competing retailers use them uh, in in Ireland unfortunately we've actually sold the poles and the wires and the fiber and we're now having commercial bun fights between uh, air as as a wholesaler and competitive retailers who do not accept uh, the, the pricing structures they're being given. So we do not see how it's possible to square that circle without actually buying the network back. We genuinely hope for the best. We wish Minister Nocton and his plans mm. more power to his elbow, but we really need to start getting broadband in quickly because the only way you can get meaningful value-added jobs in the 21st century into rural areas in particular is that those people have access to quality, reliable broadband services. Is that feasible? I mean, you have the cost of the infrastructure to begin with, but then you're also moving the goalposts. And when you change criteria like that, given the level of investment that has already been put into preparing these tenders, you'd imagine there'd be some level of compensation required. Well, perhaps yes, but I think a reasonable response to that is that the tender itself has changed so much in the last number of years that it doesn't bear any meaningful resemblance to the tender as it was originally initiated. Uh, I think there are legitimate questions as to, you know, if if we had this open tender process that had four or five companies in it a number of years ago, and uh, 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 that involved multiple consortia members, and now we're down to a single consortium provider uh, who has not so far, and and we do hope they're able to show the involvement of a substantial infrastructure 
building uh, company, uh, we, we genuinely wish them the best. Our concern is if we continue to have this six month six month cycle of bad news mm. and the minister telling us why broadband isn't coming in the next six months we, you know b- business will will just move on and it will just focus in in large con- conurbation areas where there is good broadband to the detriment um of more dispersed uh, rural or, or or townland areas in especially in the west and the midwest that's not good for ireland that forces concentration again into i'm not saying that concentration in cities is, is is a bad thing uh, and and the government plans suggest that we should be concentrating but there should also be you know well paying livelihoods for people who want to be in the peripheries mm. and uh, is it uh, a worthwhile investment because it would be a significant unforeseen investment uh, but uh, what would the return on it be because at the moment uh, you're not just talking uh, about some of the fundamentals like going on the internet taking orders, placing orders, uh, but very basic things like sending emails. So if you were to deliver broadband to areas that don't have it now, what kind of return do you think that that would result in over the years? Look, it's very hard on a, on a blank sheet of paper to quantify that kind of return, Michael. What I, what I would say, it, it's much easier to put it this way, uh, there is an opportunity cost to not having it. So the people who are planning their businesses, people who are saying they are going to invest in a business or start a business, are literally looking at a map now, and they're looking at the maps been produced by the Department of Communications and, and Climate Change and, they are, and Climate Action, and they're looking at that map and seeing what is uh, the valency of broadband in particular areas and it's on the basis of that map that investment decisions are been made so unless we literally look at that map and look at the particular areas along along national uh, uh, trunk routes um, and most particularly in the uh, border Midlands West uh, areas if, if we're not able to say with a reasonable degree of certainty to investors and businesses in, in the next short number of years you will have a viable broadband solution, then that investment will go elsewhere. And so, and the jobs that go with that investment will go elsewhere as well. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment and thanks as always for joining us this morning. Neil MacDonald is the Chief Executive Officer of ISME, the Irish Small and Medium Enterprises Association. The nationwide rollout of handheld devices to allow Gardaí make roadside checks on motorists has been recommended by a jury uh, who heard uh, the evidence given to the inquest into the death of a 28-year-old jogger. Carl Robinson was killed in March of 2017 by a van driver, Patrick Morgan, who at the time of uh, the incident was on three separate bands. After the inquest, his cousin, Ashley Reid, gave a statement to reporters. Carl was a loving, kind, helpful, caring, gentle soul. He was as good as gold. He loved the simple things in life. He didn't drink or smoke. He loved to keep fit and jogging was how he enjoyed to keep fit. He was adored by his mother and father. He never gave them an ounce of trouble and made him very proud by being the beautiful person that he was. Carl and his sister Neve were the best of friends. They had a fantastic sibling relationship. They loved doing everything together and were so close. Carl was adored by his extended family, all his friends, especially his colleagues and dons. The void he's left in everybody's lives is indescribable. 
We would like to see better communication with bereaved families following a fatal road traffic collision. At present, there, needs, there doesn't appear to be a single person or agency responsible for keeping families informed and updated at all times. The day following Carl's death on the 10th of March, we were informed that his body would be returned to us that day. But Carl didn't come back to us and nobody could tell us where he was or when he would be released to us. No one can imagine the degree of suffering and pain Carl's parents, sister and family experienced for those three days. It caused my family such deep distress and unnecessary pain. Carl's father spent the Monday morning on the phone when after much frustration and distress, found out where Carl was and when he would be returned to us. As a consequence, Carl's family and friends were denied the opportunity to mourn their loss of their loved one in a timely and dignified manner, affording Carl the respect and dignity he deserved. Carl was a totally innocent victim. He was killed 17 months ago by a driver who had absolutely no regard for the law. The person who killed Carl had three separate driving bans at the time of the collision and he continued to drive, ignoring each ban. We believe that the inability of the Garda to be able to identify the disqualified driver prior to the collision led directly to Carl's death. The laws of the state failed to protect Carl. We, the bereaved family and members of the Road Safety and Victim Support Group Park are calling on the Minister of Justice, Charlie Fanagan, to extend to all members of the Traffic Corps the handheld mobile devices that have been tried and tested successfully by Garda and Limerick. These devices will give Garda instant access to drivers' records when carrying out their roadside checkpoints. The police force needs to be modernised and brought into the 21st century. We welcome the jury's decision today to forward a, a recommendation to the Minister for Justice for these devices. And the Minister for Transport, Shane Ross. We would like to take this opportunity to thank all the members of the Gardaí who were involved in the investigation into Carl's death, in particular our liaison officer Glenn Miller and to the coroner Dr Myra Callan. We would also like to thank Garda Kira and Castle who told the coroner that handheld devices will be a great benefit to the guards in detecting band drivers at the side of the road. We hope to see the new Garda Commissioner Drew Harris beginning to train more forensic collision investigators without delay as there are serious deficiencies in the number trained nationwide with a shortage of 24 members at present. This shortage results in the roads being closed off for an inordinate length of time due to the fact that there is no FCI to go to the scene at the time. This leaves drivers frustrated but more importantly it delays an FCI getting to the scene within the golden hour period which is the time to gather as much evidence as possible. This shortage also delays the inquest hearings. The Garda's outdated 2007 road traffic collision guidelines must also be updated as much of the case law is now long out of date. We as a family, we want something good to come from Carl's death. Carl is most remembered for how helpful he was. We want to help other families in Carl's name. We want to stop other families from suffering the way we have. Carl's death was preventable and we want to prevent other people from unnecessarily dying on our roads. With the help of Park Road Safety Victim and Support Group, to whom we will be internally grateful for their support, we will work towards making the road safer. Yesterday evening, myself and Cathy, we visited Carl's grave. We silently asked for him to give us the strength to keep going, and we told him we will make him proud and make sure that his death will not have been in vain. Our sincere thanks to the media for covering Carl's inquest today. We have no doubt that with your help and highlighting and pushing these road safety issues, we will see changes that will result in fewer deaths and injuries on our roads. That's Ashling Reid speaking after the inquest into her cousin Carl Robertson's death this week. As she said, the family have had the support of a park, the Public Against Road 
Carnage Group. Susan Gray, founder and chairperson of Parkers on the Line. As Ashleen said there, the family believes that the laws of the state failed Carl Robertson to the extent that he lost his life. It was a very strong and compelling statement Ashling made. Yes, it was so moving. She spoke so well, especially under the circumstances. There was so much pain. But this is a fine example of yet another member of Park, a family that Michael's going through the most unbelievable pain, and yet they're channeling that pain and that energy, all their energies, and to transmit their own sickness so that others won't die the way Charles died. It was a totally preventable uh, crash where Carol was out jogging and a driver came along who had who was subject to three separate driving bands at the time. And knocked him down. And he died the following day in the hospital from horrific injury. Mm. So the driver Patrick Morgan went to, to the guard station in Kulak the day after yeah. Uh, he, he killed Carl uh, and said he panicked. He, he drove around the corner and set the car alight. Yes. Uh, and then that, that night it was playing on his mind and he checked social media and to make it worse, he knew Carl. And I don't know if that led him to handing himself in to the Garda station, uh, but uh, he was sentenced to five years in prison. He's in prison at the moment and has been disqualified from driving for 10 years after pleading guilty to dangerous driving, causing the death of Carl Robertson. But of course, that won't bring Carl back. And as we heard from Ashling there, his parents and his sister are mourning him and will continue to do that forevermore. Yeah, but Michael, the bottom line here is that he should have been taken off the road long before that crash happened. And here we have him getting another 10-year ban on top of the three separate bands he already has. Like, it's obviously not working. And we have a situation where the vast majority of drivers that are banned are not surrendering their licenses to RSA last year alone out of just over 9,000 that were disqualified in court, over 8,000 of them did not surrender their license. So the elephant in the room here that very few of the authorities seem to want to address is that the system that the RSA, the current system the RSA have in place to ensure that drivers that are banned surrender their licenses. It's not fit for purpose. It's not working, as they well know by the figures showing that very few are surrendering their license. So the first thing that must happen is the RSA must, the Road Safety Authority, must put a system in place that is going to work, that is going to encourage or ensure that drivers who are disqualified surrender their life. And just to explain this to people again, Susan, if you're disqualified from driving and you don't surrender your licence, you're stopped at a road check and the Garda asks you for your licence, you hand them what, to all intents and purposes, appears to be your licence uh, because it doesn't say that you're disqualified or anything like that, so the Guard waves you on. Yes, there's nothing visible on that licence. No stamp to say disqualified, to say invalid, nothing. 
Now, the Gardaí can contact uh, the local Garda station and ask whoever's manning that Garda station or one of their colleagues if it is manned. A lot of these collisions are happening at night time and lots of our Garda stations having 24-hour service. So if the Garda station's manned and if it has access to Pulse, and we know that something like 25% of rural Garda stations have not got access, direct access to both. Well, if all them, if they can tick all them boxes, then the Garda and the Garda station has to go into the pulse system and trawl through records to see if there's a record of this driver being disqualified. Now, Michael, we're in the year 2018. As the Garda inspector said to far back to 2014 to your uh, committee meeting that our Garda force are something like 30 years behind in technology mm. compared to other countries and Northern Ireland included one of them other countries so why can we not provide, why can our government not provide the funding to Garda? Is it even necessary though? Uh, I'm just wondering, is it an offence not to surrender your licence if you're yes. disqualified? it is. And to the excellent independent TD, Tony Bruin, who continually raised parliamentary questions in the DOI, he got a reply back recently showing that out of the drivers that were disqualified last year, Two were prosecuted. And I remember talking to you or, about yes. that at the time. Just, just, and just, only just, one was convicted. And we don't know I, why. We don't know why. And the one that was convicted got a €500 euro fine. Hmm. Now, for the first offence, you can get a fine up to 1000 And for the second subsequent offence, 2000 So here we had two that was brought back to court. Now, the RSA's argument, the Road Safety Authority's argument, uh, CEO, uh, Moya Mordor, claims that for them to prosecute, for successful prosecutions of the over 8,000 last year that demonstrated for their license, it would mean that a representative from the Road Safety Authority would have to attend court. And it's undoable. Mm. But our argument to that is the Road Safety Authority created this massive problem in the first place. When they took over as the, the single driving licensing authority in 2013, and they put on a provision that a requirement that if somebody was disqualified, how they would um, surrender their license is stick it in an envelope, put a stamp on it, and send it to a PO box in court. Okay, and this is now everybody knew that was never going to work, and that's why we have the massive problem of non-surrendering of licenses. Okay, in Northern Ireland, it's retained in court. Now we have been calling for the Minister for Transport, Shane Ross, to put into legislation something similar. He might have problems, but this is their problem. This is transport's problem. They have to sort it. They have to come up with a better idea of getting people to surrender licences, because they all know the current system is a farce. 
And I think we all heard the consequence in that very strong statement that Ashling Reid gave outside the inquest of her cousin, Carl Robertson, earlier in the week. Susan, we leave there for the moment and thank you as always for joining us this morning. Susan Gray, founder and chairperson of PARC, the Public Against Road Carnage Group. In the wake of a grand jury report on clergy sexual abuse in six dioceses in Pennsylvania, a Vatican spokesman called to the abuses described in the report as being criminal and morally reprehensible. Victims should know that the people is on their side. Those who have suffered are his priority and the Church wants to listen to them to root out this tragic horror that destroys the lives of the innocent, said Greg Burke, head of the Vatican press office in a written statement yesterday. In response to the report, Burke said there are two words that can express the feelings faced with these horrible crimes. Shame and sorrow. Let's remind ourselves of what's in this report and hear a little bit of what the Attorney General in Pennsylvania, Josh Shapiro, had to say. And I'm here finally to announce the results of a two-year grand jury investigation into widespread sexual abuse of children within the Catholic Church and the systematic cover-up by senior church officials in Pennsylvania and at the Vatican. The grand jury uncovered credible evidence of sexual abuse against 301 predator priests. Over 1,000 child victims were identified by our investigation, though the grand jury notes that they believe that number was in the thousands. It was child sexual abuse, including rape, committed by grown men, priests, against children. In the Diocese of Erie, the grand jury named 41 priests who sexually abused children. One priest in Erie Father Chester Goronsky fondled boys and told them he was doing so to perform a cancer check. One priest, Father Raymond Lukak, impregnated a 17-year-old girl, forged another pastor's signature on a marriage certificate, then divorced the girl shortly after she gave birth. Over a 10-year period, the priest, Gus Giella, sexually abused five sisters from the same family. Giella began sexually abusing one of the sisters, Carolyn, when she was just 18 months old. Father Robert Mosliner groomed his middle school students for oral sex by telling them how Mary had to lick Jesus clean after he was born. Monsignor Thomas Benestad made a nine-year-old give him oral sex, then rinsed the boy's mouth out with holy water to purify him. Victims were shamed. They were ridiculed. When these children told authority figures of their abuse, their accounts were questioned, and they were hushed and shunned. For many of the victims, this grand jury report is justice. The grand jurors felt a responsibility to expose the abuse and make recommendations to ensure that something like this never happens again. In response yesterday, the spokesperson for the Vatican, Greg Burke, said the church must learn hard lessons from its past. The Holy See condemns unequivocally the sexual abuse of minors. The abuses described in the report are criminal and morally reprehensible. The acts were betrayals of trust that robbed survivors of their dignity and in many cases also their faith. 
John Morgan is a spokesperson for the Catholic Comment Group here. John, I'm sure, like everybody else, you're deeply disturbed by what we've been hearing this week. Oh, that's absolutely appalling, Michael. Uh, I mean, there's very little human response that you can, you know, can totally empathize with those poor people who have been destroyed in their lives, not just uh, uh, physically, but spiritually. And uh, it's so long-lasting. And indeed, we have to be very careful when we discuss this issue because issues like this, the revisitation of this appalling treatment, re-abuses those who have suffered. And I think that's something we need to be very careful about. Indeed, and many of the victims or survivors listening to us this morning who have suffered at the hands of uh, the clergy in this country. Yes, indeed. Indeed. And uh, as you know, Michael, I'm uh, uh, chairman of the National Board for Safeguarding Children in the Church and um, currently. And, um, you know, we, we've had a long experience of this here. We've had an appalling uh, history in Ireland. Um, and uh, lives have been destroyed. And um, there is very, very, very little one can do uh, in terms of um, giving the sort of comfort that is needed um, and in the context of the upcoming World Meeting of Families, it's very difficult for the Pope. But again, the Church, as he so often says, is a family. And this awful tragedy, maybe good will come from it, because when there are awful tragedies, families gather together, they pray together, and they welcome those who are hurt and abused and destroyed and reach out to them. And of course it's difficult, but that's what I hope the message from His Holiness will be that he, and I, I would know from reading uh, up about him and have some knowledge of the whole history of this matter in the Church, uh, that he is adamant uh, on a zero-tolerance uh, policy in relation to uh, those who uh, are abused or are with cre- credible allegations. But he stands accused himself of uh, blaming victims in Chile before apologising to them and uh, then being offered the resignations of a hundred cardinals. Ian Elliot uh, obviously holds a very different view to you and says uh, that the Pope's record on child protection is dismal. Well, uh Of course, uh, I I understand the integrity of of Ian. Um, Let me just touch on that Chilean issue. Uh, Yes, he got it wrong, uh, but he admitted he got it wrong. And he undertook uh, a very thorough investigation, a very detailed investigation, the upshot of which was that he discovered that there was more than credible evidence. And uh, he summoned the Chilean uh, hierarchy to Rome, 34 of the Chilean bishops, who all offered their resignation. And to date, as I understand it, he's accepted five. So he did get it wrong, but he is absolutely adamant that he wants to root it out. Um, unfortunately, also, there has been some talk recently about how, in fact, you make bishops accountable, uh, and even archbishops and cardinals. Mm. And an initiative of his, as you know, Michael, was, in fact, uh, deflected and deferred and, and put off uh, by the uh, CDF. So, uh, you know, he, he, this is a huge challenge. Uh, but I am absolutely convinced that His Holiness Pope Francis is absolutely on the side of the victims. They are part of the field hospital of the, the family of the church. Would, would he 
be able to show solidarity with the victims by asking the three named cardinals to withdraw from speaking at the World Meeting of Families? These are the three cardinals that are uh, uh, reported as uh, Cardinal Farrell, Cardinal the, Archbishop, the Cardinal from Washington, Cardinal Worland, mm. and uh, one other cardinal, I think he's from Honduras. Maradica, uh, yeah. um, you know, uh, I think that's a, that, that, is, that is really, at this, at this hour, um, I don't know the, uh, I know the grand jury uh, had, uh, had, had, had uh, found... Cardinal of Cardinal World, yes. On Cardinal World's ca- case. Um, that's a question I really, um, I, I'm not sure that it would necessarily, necessarily yeah. uh, represent uh, a mollification or a move to be solidarity with victims. But if he thought it were, I would have no doubt that he would ask that that would take place. Okay, I have to leave there because I'm out of time, but thank you for your time and for joining us this morning. John Morgan, spokesperson for Catholic Comment, brings our programme to its conclusion today and indeed for this week. I hope you have a lovely weekend and God willing we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now, michael at lmfm.ie. 